I think we have a willingness to take risks, uh, an entrepreneurial spirit, and I think we will bounce back. And I suspect we might bounce back faster than people give us credit for. But it's going to be a bit of a slog for a few years as such. We are seemingly willing to look beyond our shores. We're not introverted as a people. We are an island, so we are insular in a way, but we've that insularity has never really manifested itself with the British because of their willingness to travel out and to invest out of Europe around the world. Hello everyone and welcome back to Ask William and Friends the podcast. This episode is all about the best of British and I am thrilled to introduce my fabulous guest Mr Jonathan Sayers. A top class British gent, a shining example of what makes this nation great. Jonathan was the history master of one of England's famous private schools, Stowe. He is also a magistrate in our legal system and he is the sovereign grand commander of an ancient order of the Fleur de Lis. Many commanders of this historic society trace their roots back all the way to the Knights Templar. You couldn't meet a more impressive or nicer chap and he fully fits the brief of the best of British. He is also a really good friend of mine and I hope you enjoy our conversation. Now, Jonathan, I believe we've known each other probably for around six years. And if I remember rightly, our first encounter was an evening at the Randolph Hotel. It was quite chilly outside, as I remember. And you came through them grand doors at the front of the building, sporting a very colourful tie. And also you added a level of, well, interesting conversation around all the guests that were staying in the bar that night and uh, a little bit of colourful language. Not foul language, may I point out. <laughs> Not all of the conversation was foul, but there was the odd occasion where my eyebrows raised slightly as a result. So, Mr Sayers, this month is obviously celebrating the best of British. What are you most proud about of being British? Um, sense of humour, I think, is very important You've to us. you got a very good one. And our history and our culture. There's a lot... And the monarchy? Oh, I'm very much in favour of the Queen. I think it's going to be a massive shock to this country when she finally dies. Um, if I was in Tudor times and I'd said that, that actually is Les Majesty and I could probably be arrested for treason and executed just for talking about the demise mm. of the monarch. So you don't talk about those things. She's absolutely remarkable and she's done such a sterling job. She's done a wonderful job over the years and um, she's got a great sense of humour. The more you find out about her. I've not met her. I have met Prince Charles. I've met Camilla, Princess of Wales. But I haven't met any of the others. <laughs> we've, got a, we've got a good set of, of, of people, mm -hmm. of royalty now, in spite of... Um, a couple of shenanigans that have been going going on over the last two years. <laughs> yes. Now, just off the cuff, let's say you were sat like we're sitting now, having a coffee, relaxed conversation, and you could choose either a historic figure or someone that's in the limelight right now. Um, who would you choose? Oh, dear. I'd even like to sit down with Putin, frankly, <laughs> just to find out what makes the man tick. I've been uh, discussing with people about uh, how, what will happen with him, how he will go. And he will go eventually. He'll either go from old age or he'll go from a tap on the shoulder. 
saying your time is up and the time is up may be bullet in the back of the head as many other Soviet leaders have, uh, have, have, <laughs> have had that way of being treated or he may just be asked to retire to his dacha and live off his personal wealth. Um, I was explaining to people how when Stalin died in 1953, I think it was 53, um, his attempt, the person who wanted to replace him was the head of the NKVD, the KGB at that time. And they arrested him in a Politburo meeting, the general who'd fought the Second World War so successfully for the Russians, Zhukov, was flown back from um, Siberia, picked up two truckloads of Red Army soldiers, turned up at the Politburo, arrested him and took him away to the Lubyanka where he was shot in the back of the head. But if you're looking back to previous regimes, it's astonishing how people who are in positions of incredible power suddenly find that it all ebbs away and incredibly quickly. I was telling my friend last night, Robespierre would, uh, would, would make accusations, uh, would say jacuzzi to the convention. Um, and the way he disappeared was because he said he was going to announce the next day that he was going to be uh, turning on certain members of the revolution. This is in 1794. And of course, by giving them 24 hours notice of this, they were all panicking because they thought it might be them. So they all banded together. And when he tried to address them, he was shouted down. He ran away to his office, shot himself in the jaw. Uh, he meant to shoot himself in the head, but he missed and blew his jaw off. So he wasn't able to use his powers of oratory um, to convince people otherwise. And he was taken away and guillotined that morning. Oh, wow. and, that, and, and that's the thing. People go very, very quickly in these mm -hmm. situations. It's not like, um, not like our politicians in Westminster who retire gracefully and then end up getting a, a peerage and disappearing off into the House of Lords. They go in a much more obvious fashion. You've worked in different areas and, and we're even, you know, even now you're very active in, in, in different roles. What has been the most important lesson you've learned over the years? Persistence. Uh -huh. I think even in the hospitality industry, persistence. But you also do need the luck of making the right introductions. I mean, our, our meeting was fortuitous, really, because it wasn't going to go very far. But, um, you know, you put some business my way. In fact, uh, I remember you consulting with me about, uh, I think it was a Saudi family, who wanted four days of tours. And of course, at that time, I had to really uh, work hard at creating enough different tours. Mm -hmm. And if you look at my website, you will see that there is a variety of different tours on the Concierge History Tour website, from sampling gins and other spirits at a well-known distillery in Oxford, or um, going up to uh, a brewery, or a cidery, um, that's for, that, that, that tour is designed for people who want to be um, fated by their own companies for a jolly, mm. you know, a nice lunch, <clears throat> etc. Or if you've got uh, tourists from America, maybe they like to go up to Sulgrave Manor to see the ancestral home of George Washington, or they can go to Blenheim Palace and see how the first Duke of Marlborough, John Churchill, was able to gain the wealth from his battles, 
and a grateful nation that provided him with the um, land for him to build Blenheim Palace on. Um, and that's a, that's a fascinating place to go to. Um, really, the jewel in the Cotswolds is Blenheim. Um, but Blenheim is named after one battle that John Churchill won. There were three others, Oudenard, Ramillies and Malplaquet. Um, so it wasn't just a one-off as such. But again, if you're looking at it from um, a historical point of view, why was uh, a grateful nation able to afford him the land and the money to pay for this beautiful palace to be built? Well, it's because England in that century, the, uh, the, the 1600s and the early 1700s, um, was a hive of industry. And there was vast wealth being made from trade, probably including slavery, that allowed a grateful nation to pay him all that money as a bonus. So, you know, it's to understand not just the battles, but also what was going on socioeconomically in, uh, in British society or English society at that mm. time. As always, Mr Sayers, it's a privilege listening to you when you're speaking about history. But where did it start for you, Jonathan? I mean... We will discuss as we move through the podcast that you've done a selection of things throughout your career and life, uh, but there must have been something that, that kicked it all off for you. What, the, hist- the interest in history? Well, I did a degree in history um, at Stirling University, and then I worked for 18 years in various different shipbroking companies based in the city and down in Brighton. And then I decided at the age of 40 that I wanted to change careers and go into teaching history Mm. and I taught at a variety of schools in London and in Sevenoaks in Kent and then um, finally I left shipbroking in about 1999 went to Cambridge University did a uh, postgraduate certificate of education PGCE in uh, in history and taught at a variety of schools as far apart as Ipswich, Seven Oaks, uh, and finally at Stowe, which was a lovely place to work. Um, I did that for 10 years then. And then I decided the time had come to change career again. But I was interested in combining my love of classic cars with um, my knowledge of history and the interaction of events in history, how things seem to fit together. And the Cotswolds is an area I live very close to. It's a beautiful part of the world with lots of history to it. And the idea was to take tourists out into the Cotswolds with a classic Rolls-Royce Silver Silver Wraith limousine and with a Bentley Turbo and drive Americans particularly or Europeans. I know all of the quality eateries around the Cotswolds. I know all of the historical sites. I mean, the Cotswolds itself is an area with a lot of beautiful countryside. It is an agricultural area in many ways and has been going right back to the medieval period and beyond. The wool trade, uh, which it was such an important factor in England's wealth, has actually manifests itself in the, the, the type of fields we have, the churches which have been built, built on the wealth 
of the wool trade. English wool in the medieval period was the best quality wool and we would sell it to Europe and it would go way down it, to Vienna, um, down to Spain and Italy and all of the civilised parts of Europe. So the wealth was made there from that. Um, Oxford served as an alternate capital during the English Civil War. King Charles actually used Oxford as his capital uh, as opposed to London, which was controlled by the parliamentarians. And in fact, the siege of Oxford uh, resulted eventually in Charles, King Charles I taking secretly his army out of Oxford to the west as the Civil War progressed, not in hit to his advantage. Parliament controlled the ports, Parliament controlled what industry there was, and of course, at the end of the day, it's industry that provides the wealth, whereas agriculture doesn't provide much of, of wealth. So Charles found himself eventually being defeated by the power of, the, of Parliament, the raising of taxes, etc. So that's what the Cotswolds can provide. I mean, my first experience of this wonderful offering that you have, Jonathan, was probably about three years ago before COVID. And uh, you picked us up from the Randolph Hotel. I was with the spa manager, Kat. And uh, you took us firstly across to beautiful Blenheim Palace uh, near Woodstock. And we visited Churchill's grave in Bladen. And then we continued through the beautiful historic villages and stopped off at Bortle on the Water for a delicious lunch. I think uh, we had fish and chips. Um, and we were in the Bentley Turbo, a 6.4 litre petrol engine, which would cost a, a, an arm and a leg uh, in the current uh, pricing structures of, of, of fuel. And it was, it was wonderful. Ask William and Friends is sponsored by Sun for New Mediterranean Voyages. I had the privilege of joining a Sun for New voyage in Greece last summer, and it was sensational. We ate, we drank, we exercised with a certified trainer. We had our own private guide that took us to the most historic site. And daily we swam in the beautiful blue Mediterranean Sea. I really, really can't wait to return. This conversation with Jonathan reminds me about the collision of passion, of history and travel with great food and drink combined. Sun for New shares the exact philosophy. Instead of classic cars, Sun for New couriers you around in a gorgeous wooden yacht. And instead of the Cotswolds, it's the gorgeous Mediterranean Sea. But like Jonathan, Sun for New created a niche offering that is a concierge's dream. I can recommend Sun for New to my clients without any hesitation. That's one of the joys of being a concierge, to help people find the perfect experiences to fit their needs. Now, this episode is celebrating the best of British, which is why I thought you would be an ideal candidate and a gentleman to have on the podcast. Jonathan is actually sat in front of me now sporting a fantastic outfit with some wonderful corduroys, great shoes, highly polished, and a fabulous waistcoat. And actually, Jonathan, the bow tie that you are wearing today is actually the bow tie of, of Ukraine. Ukraine. Absolutely. Which looks fantastic. I have bow ties for most nationalities now, which I wear depending upon the nationality of the customer that I'm carrying. So I have Canadian bow ties, I have French bow ties, all in the colours of the um, of the flag of the appropriate country. The stars and stripes can be flown from the front on a pennant from the front of the rolls, um, or the Union Jack, or the Saltire for Scotland. 
and even the German flag, funnily enough. I think it's uh, easy to say that you're a, a jack-of-all-trades. Uh, we've touched upon the fact that you love your history and you have worked in numerous schools, including Stowe, which you still do a bit for, and we will touch upon the uh, traditional puppet classes uh, shortly in the podcast. But what other things do you do? You are involved within London, which I'm aware of. You've got a selection of clubs that you're a, a member of, and you're also the head of the Fleur de Lys, uh, which is an, a fantastic charity organisation. Well, I'm a part-time magistrate. Um, now, magistrates, as most people aren't really aware of, are ordinary members of the public. Uh, it's the first line of the judicial process. If the crime that they've committed is so severe that the powers of custodial sentence, i.e. sending people to prison, is, too, is insufficient, then they are sent up to the Crown Court. But they all have to come in front of the magistrates. Um, and as members of the general public, we listen to the evidence and we decide whether the person is guilty or not guilty. Yesterday, when I arrived at the court, we had a lot of press photo photographers. There was a, a case that was taking place in there. So sometimes you really are under the public eye. Um, so that's what I do as well. Um, and you alluded to puppetry. It was an interest that I had when I was a teenager, and um, I didn't do anything much with it when I was in shipping. But when I um, went into teaching, I had to think of things that I could offer uh, to the students, and that's what I do now. And I've got a very large selection of marionettes, those are string puppets, and uh, hand or glove puppets. Uh, we're doing a play by, based on a grim fairy tale at the moment at Stowe called The Six Servants. The kids find it very fun. And, uh, I'm sure they do. And, and the students at Stowe who are sick formers, they find that they are working as a team to put on a show. And so they have to learn to work with each other. As the old expression, there's no I in team. And they have to work together to do that. So that's, that's the play that we're working on. But we've done other things with marionettes as well. So that's my area of interest as such and if you to ask me how did I get into puppetry I think when I was uh, an early teenager I got my first marionette and from then I've been a bit um, what's the word a bit too enthusiastic in buying puppets <laughs> I've now got so many they sort of hanging around in the sitting room at home and in storage at the school etc etc you know, and, and the opportunity of puppetry is you can do small theatre as such. You've, you've got your cast of characters. You learn how to produce. You learn how to make scenery. You learn how to perform, to record soundtracks, to do funny voices. You have people who can do the lighting, people who are sound engineers, people who design the scenery, paint the scenery, build the props, etc. It's all in the small. It's all small. But it's an opportunity to do theatre. And, and you're there with the thrill of performing in front of, a, of the public as such. And there's nothing like the, what is it, the smell of grease paint uh, <laughs> and, and, and the worry of, of not being able to perform to keep you on your toes as such. 
Well, it sounds fantastic, Mr Sayers, and I really look forward to being able to attend one of the performances in the not-too-distant future. So, Jonathan, you've been in the schools for many years. Is there any uh, comical stories that you wish to share with us on this podcast? Some of them I can't tell, um, but there have been occasions where one has um, (laughs) has had a student who uh, unfortunately was mistakenly assumed to be on the coach with us. Not my fault, may I say, because a head count had not been done correctly. And then one finds out later on as one's driving around the city of, uh, of Nuremberg that the student uh, has actually been looked after by the caretaker, no, sorry, by the curator of the Nazi museum and uh, finally ringing us up because his mobile phone was, was dead and us not realising uh, where he was, <laughs> that would cause one to panic. You know, other cases of students not able to find their passport and boarding card before they, they took the flight and one having to start thinking on one's feet how one's going to get them back to the school, accompanied, of course, yes. and then finding out that their brother their twin brother, had the boarding card and passport on them while standing over uh, the other twins as they emptied their baggage baggage looking for this aforementioned passport and boarding card when the brother had it in his pocket and hadn't realised that he'd picked it up. But that, unfortunately, (laughs) is sometimes students. We all make mistakes, but it's... uh, Is that what keeps you young, Jonathan? It does, the the panic sometimes that takes place. But you try not to show the panic. You just have it bubbling up inside. (laughs) (laughs) So, Jonathan, I'm very privileged to be able to call you my friend. But who has influenced you in your life? You know, you were here at Christmas with me. Uh, We share mutual friends. I ask you for advice uh, for certain things, and we work together as a collective. But who has influenced you as a person? Who do you look up to um, or have done in the past? My father has always... My father's morality has always been very important to me. My father was Ulster Presbyterian. My mother was a Scots Presbyterian. And if you know much about Presbyterians, they have a certain moral code that they try to follow. I'm not saying that other people with other religions don't have the same moral code, but certainly he was a person I could look up to. And um, in the in the town of Brighton, there's an area called Kemp Town, which is where my father's practice was. And you could go into shops as a teenager, and when they found out that you were the son of Dr. Sayers, you used to get quite a few comments about what a wonderful man he was. Mm. That's a hard act to follow mm. as such, you know. Mm. And I hope that that morality... Uh, as a way of behaving, gentlemanly conduct, etc., is maintained by myself. I try, I try as much as I can to follow those those moral precepts as such. You also in, involved within the charity organisation, and in fact, you are the head of the Order of Chivalry, which is also known as the Order of the Fleur de Lis. From what you've said to me, this dates back to around 1430, And it is, if not, one of the oldest charities, which sort of runs alongside things like the Knights of St. John's. Um, Is it just a British charity? It's now more than just British. It has its ancestry in Scotland. 
among the Scottish mercenary companies that used to go and fight on behalf of the French in the Hundred Years' War. Mm. Uh, it is fought as crusaders um, at the Battle of Kosovo in what is today now Yugoslavia, the Battle of Tannenberg, the first Battle of Tannenberg, not the one which the Germans defeated the Russians at in 1914, but an earlier event. Um, so it's been involved in that. But now, we are not. We, whilst we are a military order, we are focused completely on raising money for charity. We have this history that goes back. We have regalia that we wear at our investitures. We are dressed very medi in medieval uh, cap of maintenances, and uh, we wear cloaks, robes with the fleur de lis on it. We award people both by we have orders of merit and orders of seniority in the order. We are not Masonic, may I say, although a few mem a few of our members are Masonic, but we follow the ideas of of, of chivalry as such, and, and we've been doing that now for a long, long time. And we are looking outwards to expand the order and to raise money for charity. We raise money for Centre Point for homeless uh, young people. We look at raising money to support war orphans and war widows. So we've already started to raise money for the Ukraine appeal. Um, Centre Point, there are a lot of um, young people there from disadvantaged backgrounds, from chaotic backgrounds which Centrepoint support, and therefore that is why we support them. Our, uh, our motto for the order is honour above self, duty above wealth, justice above the law, and truth above all. And so that's what we, we focus on as mm. such. My coat of arms, which I was granted by the Court of Lord Lyon in Edinburgh, is actually used by myself on my logo for concierge wedding cars and concierge history tours and has the um, a, a, a sailing ship with the hay three shields on the sail. That's a Linford. And with uh, a fleur-de-lis um, on either side and uh, a hand, severed, severed hand underneath for my Ulster background. Obviously, hospitality has had yet another spanner chucked into the works recently, but not as bad as anything that's going on across the pond uh, at the moment. We have received some international travellers back in the UK, which is great. We've got some fantastic inquiries coming in for, for groups travelling from, uh, from the States and Europe uh, for this year. What sort of advice would you give them if they're planning to come into the UK? What are the must-sees and must-dos when they get here? Firstly, Britain is open for business. There is so much history in this country. But also, you know, for our listeners, people that live here as well, how many times do we not appreciate what's around oh, us Oh, absolutely, absolutely. You know? I had hoped that during COVID we would see a lot more people getting out. And I think a lot more people were, were glamping and a lot more people were, were travelling around. But whether or not they were appreciating the history that there is... Uh, is a difficult matter. Mm. I was at the gathering in 2009 in Edinburgh, which was put on to encourage the Scottish diaspora to come over from America and Canada and Australia and New Zealand to Scotland. And some of the locals were mocking this Tartanafia, if you know what I mean. Um, 
But the truth of the matter is, Scotland and Scotland's history is something that's, that puts a lot of food on people's plates and you, you mock it at your expense, really, because it's what brings in the money. And this is something that we need to be focusing on. And I think we've got it right. The trouble is that the last two years has done serious damage to the hospitality industry. Uh, I was in London yesterday and I noticed quite a few of the quality shops that were in German Street, which would appeal to the tourists, are all boarded up mm. now. And the restaurants are struggling to come back mm. um, in large numbers. And we need that money coming in. You know, I'm very keen to to try and encourage a, a new form of the information centre where we collaborate with the independent businesses that deal with the tourism sector, you know, but we need support. And I, I think we just need the landlords to be a little bit more flexible because actually having someone in there would be beneficial as opposed to having no one in there for six months, you know? But I suppose that leads us on to the main question as to, you know, where do you see Britain in five years from now? I think we have a willingness to take risks, uh, an entrepreneurial spirit, and I think we will bounce back. And I suspect we might bounce back faster than people give us credit for. But it's going to be a bit of a slog for a few years as such. We are seemingly willing to look beyond our shores. We're not, a, um, we're not introverted as a people. We are an island, so we are insular in a way. But we've, that insularity has never really manifested itself with the British because of their willingness to travel out and to invest out of Europe, around the world. So, you know, I think we have all of the, the right structures in place to make this country a success. I'm a great believer in that. So Britain will be great again? I hope so, yes. Mm. And I think so, yes. Mm. If we can have a period of peace, yes. you know? Yes. It's and been... trade can start again and people can come and visit, etc. Mm. I mean, you know, Heathrow is one of the busiest airports in the world because it's a trans transport hub. And um, I'm not knocking any other country as such, but, it, you know, to quote, what is it? Give us the tools and we will finish the job. Mm. Yes, we have the tools. We just need to be given the encouragement to develop what we want, what we want to do. Yeah. You know? So, Jonathan, I suppose the, the last part of the, this conversation will be our sort of roots from Scotland. Um, I know that you are very passionate about it. Um, my father was Scottish, which is why Thompson is without a P as opposed to Thompson. Um, but give me a, a little bit of insight to that. I've obviously been able to attend some of your wonderful private members, uh, the Caledonian Club in London. Uh, we had a great event there uh, for charity again, but also fantastic cuisine. Um, just give me a bit of information on that, Jonathan. The members of the Caledonian Club are typically Scots in the sense that they look out uh, beyond Little England or Little Britain, etc. And it's very international in, in the expertise that a lot of people have there. Um, I think the Caledonian is one of the warmest clubs um, in London as such, and I'm very pleased that I'm a member of it. Um, they have a lot of social activities, Scottish reeling, cigar evenings, barbecues when the weather's right. And um, the, the Scottish diaspora love coming there. 
I certainly love going to London and being there. <clears throat> well, they do know. a fantastic breakfast, don't they? Oh, the be- breakfast is best value for money, yeah. I think, in the whole of, it, of, of London, frankly. Yes. And if you are doing a tour with Jonathan in London, um, it is somewhere on the highlight that they'll probably be able to visit for a little breakfast. For breakfast, I will pick people up from the Caledonian Club. Uh, if they want to have breakfast there, I can pick them up from there. Drive them up into the Cotswolds if they want to go there. Uh, up as far as Shakespeare, Stratford-on-Avon to Highclere Castle for the Downton Abbey tour. Uh, the Cotswold Cream Tea tour, if they want to fly an aircraft, a biplane, I can organise that. I can organise tanks for them to drive. Um, there's lots of things to see. There's the River Thames, there's Henley. And, and as I've said before, a lot of very fine Oxfordshire eateries, gastropubs, restaurants, anything like that. Uh, William Thompson of uh, Ask William can arrange for other things to do in Oxford of an evening. So that works quite well. So lovely, Jonathan. Um, For our listeners, is there anything you'd like to leave with them? Words of wisdom. I've obviously been very fortunate uh, to have you as as my friend over the years and and long may it continue. But uh, what words of wisdom would you like to, to leave as your last comments? Give us a chance. We'll give you a good time. Amazing. Well, thank you, Jonathan. It's always a pleasure, never a chore. And, uh, you know, thank you for for being there. And uh, may we have many more years together as friends. Thank you. Hello, everyone. And thank you for listening to our third podcast of Ask William and Friends. I hope you loved it as much as we enjoyed making it. And a special thank you to the wonderful Jonathan Sayers. Please do let me know your thoughts and do subscribe to our series. Feel free to share with everyone you know, because let's face it, it's bloody marvellous. Our next episode is to celebrate arts and well-being, and it will feature another fabulous guest. I'm excited to think you will be with us, so please, please stay tuned. You can find us on Spotify, Apple Music, or wherever you get your podcasts.